Welcome back. And we get to wrap this one up today on surviving and thriving in troubled times. Now we have some people that have asked some questions about the DVDs and let me explain it just again. On the Daniel 11 materials, Islam and Christianity, there are two options. Those two options are a 10-hour and a four-hour, four-part. The four-part one is kind of an Adventist version. It assumes a lot of Bible understanding and a lot of prophecy understanding. And so it skims right through some stuff, but then it takes on Adventist questions such as the... Uh, what does Ellen White have to say about it? What about atheistic socialism as the king of the South? And it also covers the 1290 and the 1335. That is not covered in the 10-hour. The 10-hour, a lot more materials in it and stuff, though, overall, gets into more of the history, and it's straight Bible and history. That one is available. You can buy it as a DVD, or you can watch it for free online. Okay. So if they happen to run out of those, and they're on their last couple of them over there, uh, you can get those online. There are also, the four-part uh, four one, uh, you can get those from ABCs, or you can get them here, um, or you can get them online. But those, so it depends on who you want to watch it. If you want to share it with somebody who's a Seventh-day Adventist that knows prophecy, well, get them the four-part. If it's going to be somebody that doesn't, you either get them the 10 part or you give them the website and tell them to go watch it for free. All right? It's a pretty good sales technique, don't you think? You can buy it or you can watch it for free. So, <laughs> And then there's the surviving and thriving in troubled times. It's basically the same material, but it's in a little different format in that it was done in two separate pieces. One of them goes through surviving and thriving in troubled times. But the story of my daughter and the bottle story uh, and the letter thing are a separate piece, but they're both in there, okay? Uh, it was in a setting where I had to present it in two separate chunks, and I did it as two standalones. But they're all together here in this seminar. So it's the same material, it's just packaged slightly differently. So as we get into surviving and thriving in troubled times, Today, let's have prayers. we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we continue to thank you for your word. Not only that you give us an idea of what is coming, but you give us principles to live by so that we can live through troubled times and do well with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have, well, let, let me go through really quickly the characteristics of a survivor. They have a positive attitude, but it's realistically positive. It's not just overly positive, you know, that's just, yeah. It's not, everything's going to work out fine, don't worry. Let's work together, we can do this. Kind of positive. Hope. You've got to have hope if you're going to make it. Thinking the unthinkable. Always remember, it could be worse. And I better watch for it getting worse. <laughs> so you're not surprised if something happens. Story listening, learning from the experience of others. So when it's your turn, you're ready. Trust in God. 
The way to control fear is to name your fear to deal with it. And the best way to name and deal with fear is to say, God, here's the situation. I've given my life to you. This problem's all yours. And then go on to see what he's going to do. Alert. Survivors are alert of the situation going on around them. Some people shut down in a crisis. Other people open up. Learn not to shut down. Open up. Flexible preparedness. Be prepared, but be flexible. Be ready to change at any time. Also, there's the new normal. Don't waste time worrying about what you don't have. Focus on what you do have. All right? Truth matters. Knowing God's word, knowing the truth of any situation, it matters to have good information. Caring relationships. If you have caring relationships, you will try to survive just because of that relationship. You don't want to leave them behind. Or you will try to help other people survive because you care about them. Never giving up. Somebody told my daughter while she was fighting leukemia, why is it you don't give up? You just keep fighting. She said, I come from a family who doesn't quit. <laughs> I love that statement that she made. I thought that was great. <laughs> Never give up. Now we're going to pick up the last two that I'm going to cover with you guys and that sharing and risk to live. Uh, as I've said before, some people say, why do you do so many things that have risk? Again, you could sit in front of a TV and be a couch potato and die of a heart attack. It's up to you. Or you can go live life and enjoy what God can do. I choose not to sit there and watch other people's lives on a screen. I want to see what God can do with my life in the real world. And, uh, hey, if he's got a plan for me, it's going to keep going. If I'm at the end of the plan, I'll see him at the resurrection. By the way, what's so bad about that? <laughs> it's not so bad, is it? So today we're looking at sharing. Matthew 6, 19 to 20. And you know what? I didn't put that one in there. So let's open a Bible, which is a very good thing to do anyway. That's where I put it. <laughs> Matthew 6, 19 to 20. You know this verse. And it simply says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Okay, that's a principle to live by. Laying up treasure in heaven, how do you do that? By sharing what you have with others and for God, right? Uh, Luke 6. Luke chapter 6. Verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Survivors don't tend to worry about things they focus on people and relationships. 
I'll tell you what, if you get in a true survival situation and if you're worried about things, you're not going to do so well. In a survival situation, your things or your treasures are only good for one thing, to use them to survive. And if they're not good for survival, you ditch them in a survival situation. I backpacked the Appalachian Trail twice. Well, the southern half, 1,000 miles each trip. And uh, I can promise you, you will run into troubles in a 1,000 miles, two months of backpacking. <laughs> but you get to the first shelter or two, you find all kinds of stuff that people thought were important, and suddenly when they had to carry it all day long, they decided it wasn't important anymore. I mean, if you lived near there, you could collect enough stuff to run a camping store. <laughs> Shelters have all kinds of stuff laying around there. Uh, you sure figure out in a hurry what you do and you don't need. It's even more so in a survival situation. Um, sharing. But you know, the Christian life is a lot more fun if you're sharing too. Jesus is saying if you put it all in good, you're going to lose it, right? Put it in a bank account. I'm just kind of pessimistic enough that I don't trust the government or the economy that it's really going to be there when I need it. I know I'm supposed to, especially by law, putting parts of my income into uh, retirement funds, but I do know what happened in Cyprus. Forty-some percent of the funds were just taken by the government. Everybody's account was reduced by forty-some percent because they had a cash flow problem in the government. And I know what can happen to the stock market where we're supposed to be putting some of our stuff. And I know what can happen to Social Security do you think I really am hoping, I'm hoping, but do you think I'm really fully expecting all those things to be there when I need them? I tell my dad, I am really glad he's collecting Social Security because at least I feel like my money that I'm putting in is going somewhere. Because I'm not at all optimistic it's going to be there when I need it. But that's okay. Because it would just mean we're that much closer to Jesus coming. So, and besides, whose life is it? Mine or his? Yes, so I'm not too worried about this stuff. I had a guy in one of my churches. He was quite an interesting character. He was very, you would consider him quite poor in things. But he was rich in friends. And he was a Seventh-day Adventist. His wife was a Methodist. And he was our head deacon. And Warren just loved to give stuff away. He was a Sears repairman. And they'd throw stuff in the dumpster and he'd take it home and he'd fix it and he'd give it to somebody. And so if you needed an appliance or somebody was in need or whatever needed an appliance, he'd figure out how to get one put together out of parts in a dumpster and he'd give it to them. And he was just constantly doing that kind of stuff. You give Warren a bunch of vegetables and he'd get part of them home, but he'd give part of them away on the way. And they might give him something and he'd give that to somebody. You know, He's just like a broker of giving stuff away. Now, Warren never has much, and he never has enough money to buy a house or anything like that, because he'd find somebody that needed it. And so he was in this old duplex. I mean, we're talking an old one, kind of like a row house duplex in an old town, all right? Eastern city. Probably built in the late 1800s. And he's living in that thing. And his landlord died. And he was told to show up that his landlord had something in the will for him. 
He thought, what would that be? $100, $200, what might it be? He goes down there, and the lawyer says, here, sign these papers. A duplex is now yours. <laughs> oh, you know the interesting thing about that? The person that lived in the other side of the duplex, which had been kind of a friend of his, but kind of a grouchy person, got mad at him because the landlord gave him the duplex and wouldn't talk to him or pay rent. Guess what Warren did? Oh, well, they can stay. <laughs> that was Warren. By the way, as I said, he was not rich in worldly things, but he sure was rich in friends. There came a really interesting day that Warren's wife showed up for a prophecy seminar that I did. And she heard about the Sabbath and the seminar, which she'd known about for a long time. By the way, Warren had an income. She did not. She was a stay-at-home mom. So since she went to church and he went to church, he took the tithe and he split it and let her take half of it the Methodist church and he put half in the Adventist church. That's Warren's kind of guy. And so she goes, listens to the seminar and on Sunday morning she goes to church and she talks to the pastor and she says, Pastor, I've been learning at this seminar that the real Bible Sabbath is on Sabbath. And can you give me the information to prove my husband and his church wrong? And the pastor says, no, that's right. The Bible Sabbath is Saturday. She showed up at the meeting that night. She said, uh, I think I'm going to be a part of this church. And she told me what happened. She said, if he knows that, why isn't he practicing? So shortly thereafter, we had this baptism. She'd never been baptized by immersion. She's baptized as she comes up out of the water and Warren which nobody can see because Warren's not an upfront guy. But off the side of the baptistry, you know, the little stairway where you go back in the change? He's the head deacon. Of course, he can be there. <laughs> and he steps around the corner. She comes up out of the water with a dozen roses in his arms. <laughs> so it's kind of neat. I didn't know that was coming either. <laughs> I was walking behind two rich men at a Christian college. I was actually kind of uh, chauffeuring for one of them. Uh, he was an older guy and he shouldn't be driving too much. <laughs> and these two guys were walking along down the sidewalk and this guy gave lots and lots of money to Christian education. The other guy was on the board too, but he hadn't given a lot yet. He had it all in his estate to give to the Christian education. And so I'm listening to this discussion. And the first guy who gives away lots of money while he's living says, how much are you giving? And he says, oh, I've got it all set up in my estate. He says, that's no good. Why is it any good? He said, it's no fun to have it do the Lord's work after you're dead. It's a lot more fun to watch it happen while you're living. And he said, besides, I learned this. When I, the Lord gave me blessings with a tablespoon and then I took a tablespoon and gave away the blessing. So the Lord took a scoop shovel to give me more blessings. So I took a scoop shovel to give the blessings away. And then the Lord took a steam shovel to give me more. So I had to use a steam shovel to get rid of it. He said, you're really blowing it. Have more fun. Now this guy actually practiced it. Because he, a couple of times he'd come in on the campus and ask me, tell me the names of some students that are working really hard. They're not getting that good of grades because they're working too hard because they've got to pay their own way through. And uh, I'd give him the names of a couple of students, and then I'd listen. 
And within a couple of days, I'd hear somebody come in. I don't know what happened. I just went to the business office. I don't have a bill anymore. They won't tell me what happened. I just don't have a bill anymore. I'm going, ah, I know. <laughs> I wouldn't tell them that. <laughs> but, you know, that is a lot of fun just to be able to give the tips and then watch what's going to happen. This guy practiced what he said, sharing. I'll tell you what, when you're in a crisis situation, you need to share. It's not about protecting yourself. In a crisis situation, you work together to get through it. You turn on each other, everybody goes down. It's the same spiritually. Uh, so, the next one, risk to live. Matthew ten thirty nine. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. James Eliot said it this way. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He was talking about his life. And James Eliot with four other men gave their lives to reach the Indians in Ecuador. They were murdered by those Indians who because of their, the way they died, those Indians became Christians. Nate Sinclair, the pilot of the plane that went in there, his son was later baptized by one of those Indians that killed his father because that Indian had become a Christian pastor. God's got some real interesting surprises. By the way, you can't earn eternal life on your own, can you? That's a gift of God. And if you give your life to God, He gives you eternal life. Can you get that on your own? No. So when you give up that which you cannot keep, you get that which you cannot lose. Makes a lot of sense to me. It makes sense on a survival situation as well. Uh, there's a guy by... Stephen Callahan was his name. Stephen Callahan was doing a solo crossing of the Atlantic. He'd gone through a divorce and he was trying to just get his mind put back together kind of thing. And so he was sailing from Europe across the Atlantic towards the United States. He was just leaving the Canary Islands. Well, let, let me tell you this about Stephen Callahan. He believed in be thinking the unthinkable and being prepared, okay? He's a survivor-type mentality. They told him in his, when he was putting together his gear for his yacht, little, little sailboat that he, you might want to call a yacht, it's not really a yacht, it's a sailboat, that he needed to have a two-man raft the regulations. He sat down in a two-man raft, inflated a two-man raft, and sat and said, if I've got to spend any time in this thing ever, no thank you. He got a six-man raft. <laughs> that was going to save his life. And so he's crossing, starting his crossing. He's leaving the Canary Islands, and he's not traveling in shipping lanes because he likes to go to sleep at night and not worry about getting run over by freighters. And so he's traveling outside of shipping lanes, but the problem is, if you ever have trouble outside of shipping lanes, <coughs> your odds of getting found are down. But since he wanted to sleep and he didn't want to dodge ships, it was a safer option. And so this particular evening, just as he's starting his trip, he, he's heading into a little squall, but he's done a lot of sailing and everything, and no big deal. He's got it all set up. It's going to keep going on its direction, even if he's not there at the helm. 
And he takes a look up at his mast, and there's this little blinking light, and he waves at it because he's got a little camera up there recording things. He goes down and lays down and goes to sleep. During the night, there was a sudden crash, and the boat lurches up into the air. That's the way he wakes up. It comes back down and instantly fills with water. As he swings his feet out of the bed, I mean, it's just, he's in water just like that. This thing's going down now, is at least filling with water. He goes out the hatch. He, he, he had right there by his bed, by the head of his bed, his survival bag happened to be at the other end of the bed. He missed that, but he grabbed his knife, and he's got a knife in his teeth. He makes it out just as it is going under. You're wondering what happened. Here's what they think happened. They think he was unlucky enough and a whale was unlucky enough that the whale came up to breach and got a headache when it crushed the hull of his ship. Just nailed him. Just random accident out there, okay? In the middle of the night. And so he gets out and just as he gets out, the bo- he discharges his raft and it inflates and pops up and the boat is rolling over and he's in his raft and the bo- boat now just is with water washing over the hull upside down. And the sun's coming up. Oh, I should tell you, as he comes out of the cabin, he waves at the camera again. He is so alert of where is what's going on, he's realizing this thing is filming it and he's got this thing in his this knife at his mouth and he poses just for a moment as if he's a buccaneer kind of thing as the, as the boat is inflating and he hops in it and now he's thinking as the sun's coming up I'm in a boat I've got a raft I have a survival knife but my survival bag is on the far end of that cabin underwater I need it but to get it he's got to dive underwater come up in the hatch, avoiding getting tangled in any of the cabling. He's got to swim the length of that cabin, unhook that bag, get back out, and if there's no air pocket in there, he's got to do all this on one breath of air, and then pulling the bag, avoid getting tangled, and get back out, and hope the thing doesn't go down while he's doing it. Just the combination of things he's got to think about as he goes in. But he figures, if he doesn't do this, he's probably going to die in a few days. If he does it, he's either going to die today or he's got a chance of living. One way has a chance of living, and that is to take the risk right now. So he takes the risk. He dives down, swims in. There is no air pocket. Swims down there, gets to it, pulls the knife out of his teeth, cuts the rope. He doesn't bother to untie things. He's not got that kind of time. And he kicks as hard as he can, and he's going back out, and he makes it. I mean, he says his lungs were just bursting. He gets out, climbs into his boat. I mean, it's in raft, and the boat goes down. So he's made it. Inside the bag that he's just gotten is a solar still so he can make water. Not much, but a little bit. It's got a couple of little things, such as a spear gun. Any fish comes up near his boat, he can get food. It's got one or two pints of water. But even after you drink it, you've got the container now to put water from your soul is still in. 
And it's just got a few things like that. It also has a fork. Believe it or not, the fork was going to save his life part way through. And uh, so he's got these things, and he starts floating. A day, a week, a couple of weeks, a month, two months, three months. Uh huh. During this time, he's getting just enough food with his spear gun. And about now, he sees this barracuda coming by. Takes the spear gun and he shoots it. And he makes a direct hit. The spear goes through the barracuda and the barracuda goes into a frenzy, comes right back at his raft and rolls and the point of the spear is pointing out of the side of the fish and it rips his raft. And I've lived three months just to do this. He tries all kinds of things. He's got a little pump and he's pumping and blowing and he's and it's going back. He's trying everything he can think of. And then he thinks of a jerry tube. You know what a jerry tube is? Anybody a backpacker that knows what a jerry tube is? My wife. Okay, you do. <laughs> it looks like a toothpaste tube. A little clear plastic tube. But it's got a cl- you fold the end of it and slide a clip on it. You take the clip off, you fill it up, put the clip on, and then you squeeze stuff out of it. You wash it out later, fill it up with the next thing, peanut butter, honey, all that kind of stuff. You just squeeze out of there. All right? Great. He thinks of a jerry tube. He rolls up, sticks the fork in to keep it from unrolling, pumps it up, and he only has to pump it up once a day now. It's a very slow leak. He keeps going. 76 days after his boat sinks, he's approaching Central America. And he sees land in the distance, and up comes a little fishing boat. And there's this school of fish all around his raft. And these guys see him, and the bummer is they have to rescue a guy and take him to shore and not go fishing. And he says, no, don't, don't worry, you can go fishing, I can wait. 76 days, I mean, what's the difference of a couple hours? And he celebrates by drinking a pint of water that he's been saving up. I mean, hey, I can drink a pint of water and really be happy today. (laughs) Go ahead, get the fish. So they load up the fish, then they take him to shore, and he's happy too. 76 days later. How well do you think he'd have done with the survival knife, and that's it? How much water would the survival knife get you? None. It was really crucial to risk his life to save it. Now, I'm going to try and tell you a story that's going to tie a lot of these things together, and it's a personal one that happened to me. It'll include some good decisions and bad decisions that I made in that story. Uh, It's about a caving trip that went bad, and the only reason we stayed alive is we got rescued. Uh, I am a certified guide for a cave in Arkansas called Bitten Cave. It's two miles off the nearest road, and that's a four-wheel drive road. And there's a trail that goes near the cave, but not really to it. It is a locked cave. It's on National Park land in the Buffalo River National uh, River area. And it has this padlock on it. And I'm allowed to take four to eight people. You have to have at least four, so if somebody gets hurt, I can leave somebody with the injured person, and two of us come out of the cave. 
I mean, the good news is cave lighting, your helmet lighting is not all that great. Because if most people could see what we were taking them through, it would scare them to death because we're going through cliffs and drop-offs and all kinds of stuff as we're going through these passages. And there are places we use ropes. And uh, only when there's no other way because it's a hassle to set them up. <laughs> and so we go in there, but it's a really neat cave. I'm taking eight on this particular trip. It includes my two teenage daughters, my then 10, year, 10 or 11-year-old son, Michael, who's now 22, my teenage niece, her 19-year-old boyfriend, uh, myself, made six, and a young husband and wife, they were in their mid to upper 20s. He's a contractor and she's a nurse. Made eight of us. We go in on a Sunday morning. Now, the park service was later to tell me they didn't think anybody would go in there on a day like that. It was a pretty interesting day. There were flash flood warnings out. It had been thunderstorming Saturday night with flash flood warnings out for Sunday morning. Now, I have this logical mind that tells me if I have thunderstorms on Saturday night, yes, there's flash flood warnings on Sunday morning, so if on Sunday morning I can make it to the cave, it, cave, it should be a piece of cake to make it back in the evening because the water should be going down. So if there's a flash flood I can't deal with, I just don't make it to the cave, and then it's okay. If I can deal with it, I can still do this trip. So we load up and we go in there and we've got to cross a little creek three times to get to the cave. I have a rope because my intention is to go into the lower levels of this cave because it's got some really neat crystal stuff down there. I mean, this cave has stalagmites, stalagmites, all kinds of decorations, crystals, even has angel hair, which is a little kind that looks like cotton candy that hangs from the ceiling of the cave. You blow on it, you destroy it. It's got cellulite selenite needles and stuff, they look like pencil lead squeezing up out of the floor. You touch them, you break them. I write a report as a leader of the group that was in before me. The next group after me will write a report on me, however long that is later. And if I see destruction, I report it, and they go after the people that are there before me. It's the way the system works. And like I said, I was an approved guide, so I have this thing. We're heading in. We get to the first crossing. It doesn't look that good. It's normally about ankle deep, and it's probably uh, almost as far as from here to the back wall of the tent uh, wide. And it's not running ankle deep today. It's running about this deep, and it's white water. This is up in the hills. Now, that's about as deep as I want to tangle with white water on a crossing. I grab a stick. I tie off my rope to a tree. And I take off across the river with the rope. It's not like I'm using it for a safety, for me. I'm stretching a rope across the river. I've got a log, and I'm bracing against the current, and I'm just walking across. I have some fast, dry pants on. So, oh, it's December <laughs> in northern Arkansas. It's not that bad. It's a fairly decent day. It's probably in the 60s or something. And uh, I get to the far side, I go up and I pull the rope really, really tight on a tree and as tight as I can, so I've now got a rope stretched across the river, of the creek, which is now a river, above the water level. 
And I take my group one at a time across on what's called an Antrolean Traverse to keep them dry. Some of them are wearing blue jeans. Anybody involved in mountaineering enough to know the saying, cotton, cotton kills? Yeah. So I'm trying to keep them relatively dry. I'll get wet. I don't care. I'm going to dry out pretty quick. I'm trying to keep them a little bit drier. It's a little drizzly, but, you know, well. Get them across. I think, I'm going to leave that rope there. Remember, there are three crossings. How many do you have to make to get back to your car? One. It's an odd number of crossing, which means my car's parked on one side, the cave's on the other. If it gets really bad, all I have to do is cross this thing once, and I'm on the same side as my car. So I leave the Trollian Traverse set up. I just knocked off going into the lower levels of the cave, just in case I need it coming out. By the way, that almost killed us, leaving that rope. We kept going. We got to the second crossing. It's just as bad, but now I don't have a rope. So what did I do? I and one other guy took turns carrying people across. We just shuttled them across on our backs to keep them relatively dry. We got to the third crossing, did the same thing. From there, we went up to the cave, and I spin the combination, open it. It's just like a prison door. You open it with barred gate. I get the whole group to go down inside. You pull it shut and lock it. We're now in. And everybody in the group, I tell them the combination, in case I get hit on the head. You do want to get out of there. Also on the way in, right by the car, I have a permit, right? They know I'm supposedly going to be going in, although I find out later they don't think anybody went in that day. And I drop my permit in there, which, and on the permit I write when I expect to come out. Because the idea is if I don't come out when I say I am, they send a rescue team. So I know at a certain time tonight, if I'm not out, there should be a rescue team coming. That's kind of nice to know, right? That's why you work within the system as much as you can. So we're working our way in here, and I'm burning a lot of time, so I'm knowing our trip's not going to be the typical 10 to 12 hours underground. It's only going to be five or six. Here's one of the neat little rules. It's called pack it in, pack it out. If you need to go to the bathroom, you pack it out. I mean, it, it's serious, pack it in, pack it out out of this thing. <laughs> And so we get, drop down in there and we take off. And uh, I get to a little place called the manhole. Because it's about this big around, and I have a piece of webbing that I've made into a little, like a little rope ladder. And I hook it to a little stalactite and I drop it down the manhole and we can just go down that thing. The manhole is sloped all the way around it and it's like polished smooth stone with a flow that went down this hole which means there's some stalagmites at the bottom that come up. It's not a place you want to fall. And while I was setting it, just as I set it over the, the loop over that little stalagmite, I slipped. And it's just right down a funnel. Thing of it is, I don't need to look down there. I know where the stalagmites are. I've been there lots of times. And I'm thinking, I do not want to hit that thing. It's only little ones. They're only about that tall. And they're rounded. But that's an instant broken ankle if you land on the dude. And I knew that they were right in the center, but off to the side doesn't have them. So I grabbed this little chunk of rock as I went by. That slammed my, my ribs into the side of it, into another chunk. But it swung me to the side, and I hit beside the stalagmites. Cracked a rib in the process. 
But you can keep going with a cracked rib. But a lot easier than a cracked broken ankle. And so the other people that weren't really the cavers in there and didn't know exactly what's going on, what was that noise? I said, I slipped, come on down the ladder. <laughs> it was about 10 to 15 feet down the hole. And uh, so they came on down and we headed off on this level and we did a whole bunch of neat things. And, but I was watching my clock and I didn't really want to get rescued by a rescue party. And I'd never had been at that point. And so we work our way back out. And as we get to what's called the out room, around the corner to the far end is the exit. And I see a strobe light flashing. And I thought, I'm not even to my exit time yet. What do they have a rescue vehicle back here for? And I thought, there's no road within miles of here. They can't get a rescue vehicle here. What's flashing? Now I'm curious. Huh. Get over towards the opening and there's a waterfall coming in the door. There's no creek there. It was really a pain to open that combination lock in a waterfall. Open the door, crashes open, and it's, it's nighttime. It's probably about 6 o'clock in December on a stormy night. It's a thunderstorm rolling out there. What I didn't know is that thunderstorm had been blasting away and stalled out almost the whole time we were underground. And we started with flash floods. This is now one of those 100-year flood events. And what was a dry little wash just outside that thing is now running a good three to four feet deep. It's only about four feet wide. It's just a really steep little cut. And right below it's a, a drop-off, and it's now a really raging waterfall. And so we had to very carefully hand the hand and make sure we got people across that thing. And it's not even supposed to be a stream. I mean, it's a dry stream, okay? But it's just raging. And there's water shooting out of little crevices all over the place on the cliffs. I had never seen anything like this. And I, for a moment I thought, should I stay in the cave? And I thought, I've got that rope over the river. We can make this. Because if we can get to the car, we have dry clothes and we have food. It's only two miles away. I only have to cross this stream once. I left the cave. Remember that thing about flexible preparedness? If you are prepared and you're not flexible, you will stick with your plan when you should stop. I stuck with the plan and I went out. Got down to the trail. I knew there was a fourth crossing just upstream. So I went to the fourth crossing and I looked. And, okay, when I say I look, it's night. And so you're looking in just that little spot. Wherever you look, your helmet-mounted light is looking at. And I look at the water and it's raging. And I look just downstream of the crossing and I've got a four-foot standing wave in this brush called strainers. And I know if anybody slips, they're dead if we try that. And I calculate for a moment what were the odds and I realized the odds weren't good. I could get some people across, but I wouldn't get them all across alive. So that option's out. From that moment on, for the rest of the night, it was which is the least likely to kill people, and that's the option I took. 
It's not a lot of fun when you're making decisions that way. We headed downstream. And the, the trail goes into this raging water. There is no way to cross it. And so we go up the edge of a cliff. The water slams into the bottom of the cliff. We go up the cliff and we had prayer together that when I chose a ledge, it would be a ledge that made it through to the other side. I'd never been on these cliffs, so I had no idea which ledges did what. I went up parallel to the cliff for a while, missed a ledge, another ledge, and then, ah, let's take this one. Why? Well, it's just the one I felt impressed to take. We start working our way across it. I mean, we're talking in a thunderstorm. Water is pouring down these cliffs everywhere. There's a little bit of dirt and mud on these ledges. You look past your feet. You realize if you slip, you're going right into that white water slamming into the base of the cliff. So everybody be careful. The ridge went through. The ledge went through. Came out the other side, dropped down, and I hit the trail right where it came out of the water on the next area. We had to do that twice. During the second crossing, I have to tell you, during the second ridge crossing, ledge crossing, the temperature was beginning to drop, and it was dropping like a rock. It was going to be snowing before dawn. And I've got people that are soaked to the core, and some of them are wearing cotton. And I was in water, and we were crossing little side streams that shouldn't even be there, but they're running waist deep, and I'm carrying people over that. And there were a couple of places I tried where it was wide to see if I could figure out a way. And in this cold water, my legs were being exposed over and over again, and they were starting to feel heavy. I happened to have a pair of rubber boots on for the outside the cave that day. I had tennis shoes for inside the cave. And I'd just be walking along, and every once in a while, I'd just empty them. And it just kept filling up over and over. But I'd leave them full for a while because it was actually warm water inside. About this time, my 10, 11-year-old son says, Daddy, I'm cold. I need to stop and rest. I said, no, we're going to keep going. Uh, a little while later, it was actually on one of those ledges. It was a wide spot. I got the group together on that second cliff. I said, I want you to open your packs because they were dragging. I want you to look through your packs, and if there's any calories, I want you to eat it. I want you to leave anything that you don't need for survival tonight. You don't need to carry the weight. If you need it for survival, you take it. If you don't, you leave it. I don't care what it's worth. They went through. They took me seriously. They left stuff there. My son said, what about littering? I said, I don't care tonight. <laughs> And I watched people share what was left of apple cores and eat them. They knew they were in trouble. A little later as we're walking, my son walks up beside me again and he's crying, Daddy, I'm cold. Can I stop? I want to take a nap. And I turned to him. I said, Michael, if we stop moving tonight, we will die. Oh. He never cried again that night. And uh, we, as we were moving, we were now without a trail because we'd come to the Trollian Traverse place and the water is now running so deep, the rope is underwater. I can't even get to it. 
And to get downstream to opposite where the car was parked, there were some old fields from the 1930s that have grown up and they're full of green briars and all that kind of stuff. And you just have to duck and tuck and ram your weight backwards through and rip a hole through the green briar. So we're getting lacerated and that kind of stuff and the ponchos aren't worth much after you do that for a little bit. It's that kind of night. <laughs> and we eventually get to just opposite my car. It's like my car is closer than here to the food, food tent from where I'm at. But in between is a raging river. And there is this ford where it's nice and wide. It's got a concrete bottom. It's running too deep. The contractor that's with me says, I want to try it. I say, I recommend you don't, but it's a free country, but please don't. He said, I'm going to try it. He started wading out into that. I, I said, okay, here's how you do a crossing if you're going to try it. You take a good stout stick, you brace downstream, and you take one step at a time, you get planted, you get another one, and that's how you do a whitewater crossing. He started into it. He came right back. He said, I'm not doing this. I said, good choice. We gathered together. We had one poncho left and got everybody under that poncho. It's still raining. Got everybody under that poncho. It, I was outside of it. Because I had my caving light and I'm standing under this big giant oak tree with no leaves on it in December. I should be within 100, 200 yards of a search party. And I'm just flipping my light back and forth across that tree. I mean... Any self-respecting search party in the middle of the night sees a tree going, psh, psh. they ought to come there, right? That's what I thought. <laughs> it could be seen for miles, probably, because, or well, not when it's raining, but a long ways, because there's no light in the area. People ask, why don't you use a cell phone? <laughs> cell phone doesn't get into these kind of places. And... So I'm doing that, and it's now 1 o'clock in the morning. And I am getting violently cold. And I'm shaking, and my group inside is shaking. And all but one of them are Christian, so they're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I'm wondering what that 19-year-old weightlifter that's not a Christian is thinking about now, but I think it's better, no time better than now to learn about Christianity. <laughs> And I realize, I know this fire, this crossing comes over and there's a fire trail that goes up in the mountains. Uh, about 15 years earlier, I'd gone up that fire trail and I knew a couple miles up there, 15 years earlier, there was a cabin that was partially collapsed. And I finally told my group, I said, it's one o'clock in the morning. There is no search party. That tells me there probably won't be one tonight. And I think our best chance is if all of us together go up this trail and 15 years ago there was a collapsed cabin up there. I cannot promise you it's still there. But it's worth a try. Are we in? Because I can't separate. I've got to keep everybody together. They agree. My real goal is to get them moving again. Only this time I put the contractor and his wife in the front, and I pull the rear. I have some real reasons for that. One, I pull up the rear quite often anyway to put, get stragglers going again. 
But this time I knew I was in trouble. I was the one that had been in and out of water. I'd been carrying people even though I had a cracked rib. And at this point, it was getting difficult to take the next step. I skipped something that you ought to know about how our group was doing. A couple hours into it outside the cave, sometime just after leaving stuff on the ledge, somebody said, hey, I've got to go to the bathroom. I said, okay. Are you wet? Yes. Could you get any wetter? No. It's warm water. Nobody ever stopped to go to the bathroom that night. It was warm water. That giving you an idea of how we were doing? <laughs> it felt better for a little bit. <laughs> and uh, so we're working our way up there. And my intention is that if I fall down, if I'm not able to take another step, my group won't see it happen. But I know I will not stop. If my legs quit, I can crawl. And I know stories of guys who crawled for miles after they couldn't walk. And I locked in on that story. Story listening is valuable in these times. And so I knew I made the decision I will not stop until I'm no longer thinking. And even then, I hope I'll keep going. My son realized there might be an ulterior motive for being in the back. He would not leave me. He stuck with me. And so we're working our way up. Now, I'm not moving that fast, but I'm moving. Thankfully, I never did go down that night. I was not sure when it was going to happen. I was on the edge of it. And I come across my niece and her 19-year-old weightlifter boyfriend. He's a bodybuilder. He's with a whole bunch of vegetarians. If you have to have an endurance test, which is going to win, a horse or a lion? The vegetarian horse will over a lion. A high-protein diet is good for a burst of strength, but not for endurance. So guess who's going to check out first? The 19-year-old weightlifter. And when I catch up to him, she's literally slapping him. He's still standing. But she's slapping him to get him back to alertness, to get him going again. And that's how she kept him going. He dropped everything at this point. I was seeing his stuff laying along the trail. And I wasn't picking it up. It's just tough. He lost it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I heard a shout up ahead. It's my contractor guy. And, you know, a little bit of a shout can give you a lot of courage and burst of energy. And we get up here to see what's happening. And he found a handicapped outhouse. <laughs> Just like that bigger one over there. Yes! Hey, you can pack eight people in really good and tight. It's out of the rain. I have slept in outhouses before in bad circumstances. I have absolutely no qualms about doing this. <laughs> but if there's an outhouse there, 
Why is it way out in the nowhere? And handicapped, no less. Yeah. Well, basically, it's handicapped because that's probably the one they had because there is no handicap accessibility to that area. <laughs> and so I'm standing there evaluating. I said, okay, I'll just stay here. Go on just a bit further and see what you find. He goes, and it's snowing now. He goes just a little bit further and he shouts again, I found the cabin! And it wasn't long. I mean, it's just 200 yards or something and I'm to the cabin. That semi-collapsed cabin is now a rebuilt historical landmark with a sign on the side of it that says six months in jail, $5,000 fine for breaking and entering. <laughs> My daughter looks at it. She says, Dad, prisons are warm and they have food. <laughs> I'm an antique bottle collector, right? They put in the windows of this cabin rippled glass. We had to take a rock and break off the wood strips that held the wire mesh over the windows. Then the contractor put a rock through that glass. I reached through and opened and went in. I didn't break and enter. He broke and I entered. <laughs> I went around, opened the door from the inside and brought my group in. We now have a cabin with a roof and only one broken window. It's a whole lot better than what we had. There's one metal desk and a broken wood stove with no chimney. Besides, we didn't have anything to light a fire with. And it was cold in there. There was a little closet in the corner that was padlocked. What's in there? I take my little Leatherman, good survival tool, by the way, <laughs> toss it over to the contractor and I said, get through that door. And I started stripping the weight lifter because he's just on the verge of unconsciousness. I'm going to get him out of his wet clothes. Then I'm going to figure out what to do with him. I'm going to put him body to body with some other folks, whatever it takes. And I start stripping him down and the weightlifter goes through and he, it doesn't take him long to get through that door. I mean, not the weightlifter, the contractor guy. He gets through. He finds a couple of miles of cables on spools. Rescue communication for cave rescues. That's worthless to us in here. But there also happens to be Three sleeping bags. Wow. There is a Coleman lantern, a Coleman stove, single burner, a can of gas, and three lighters. Oh, there's a can of corn and a can of beans. Praise the Lord. Perfect. And uh, so now I know what I'm going to do with this weightlifter. I finish stripping him down. I strip my 10-year-old son down. And I stick him in body to body inside of one of those sleeping bags. They're two in the worst condition. We heat up 
there's a little pot in there too. We dump the corn and the, and the beans in there, stir it all up and heat it up. And there was a spoon in there. I mean, we had everything we needed. And I'd sit there beside the weightlifter and I'd make sure he's conscious and I'd give him a bite of warm food. And I'd get him to swallow that and then I'd make sure he's conscious and I'd give him another bite of warm food. Warming him up from the outside and the inside. And then we share a few bites each of some of this food so we have some calories. So we got two people in one sleeping bag that leaves six of us for two. We couldn't fit three in one. So I laid the three teenage girls down, their upper teens, 16, 18 years of age, against the boys. I am not asking them to keep any distance between them. Jam as tight as you can get. <laughs> so they go up against these two guys that are in the sleeping bag. They're laying on their sides, and I lay one of the, the second sleeping bag over them, I lay down against one of my daughters as tight as I can. The nurse goes as tight as she can against my back and her husband's on the outside edge. He's got more weight. He's a little heavy. That's how you make the decision on who's on the outside. He's got body fat. He's got internal insulation. He's on the outside. And he's up against her and we throw that over us. And just laying those sleeping bags over us caused them to be soaked quite shortly. We couldn't strip down because we're laying against the cold floor. And we laid there and we literally violently shook. I mean, you are cold to your core when you're in hypothermia. It hurts. And we waited for dawn. And dawn was coming eventually. It took a long time. Oh, by the way, I'm laying there. As soon as I laid down and Tanya came up against me, I thought, I made a mistake. I cracked a rib earlier that night. Guess which side I was on? I thought, if I roll over, I'm face to face with somebody else's wife, cuddled up. No. <laughs> I'm just going to take the cracked rib and not move. <laughs> and so I'm laying there and I'm shaking. And I mean, actually, I left my helmet on because that kept my head from being against the floor. There's a little bit of a, you know, padded structure in there. <laughs> I just laid there and shake. And by morning, I went outside right after dawn. I wrapped up in one of those blankets and the other two that were there were huddled around the stove seeing what they could get. And I went outside and I started listening for the sound of an airplane or a helicopter. There was a little clearing outside the cabin. And I can promise you, when I, if and when I heard a helicopter, I wasn't going to run and hide. I was praying for the sound of an airborne rescue that was never going to come. I waited and I waited. There was nothing. Somewhere around 10 o'clock in the morning, I didn't think my legs had it in it to try and make it out. Besides, I didn't know if the water was down enough a couple of miles down the hill. And Troy and Tanya, the contractor and his wife, were in the best physical condition of anybody at this point. I was the old guy. <laughs> and they said, we saw a distant light on a mountain ridge up here last night. We want to make a break for it. I said, that's not a good idea. I said, we really need to stay together. They said, is the rescue party come? No. 
We want to go for it. I said, okay, here's what you do. And I mapped out, marking different ridges. I said, you must follow the route we agree on so if we get rescued, I can tell them where to find you. You cannot veer off of this route. Or if you may never be found if you do. So they agreed and they took off. An hour later, I was back in again trying to warm up by the stove. And I, I mean, it's not it's a pathetic thing to do, but you're just shaking violently. Even the little stove is not going to do you that much good. And my daughter looks out the window. She said, something moved outside. She looked closer. She said, oh, it's just another waterfall. They were everywhere. Not that they were supposed to be, but they were. And she's looking out the window, and she, a little bit later she says, if it's a waterfall, it has a national park emblem on the side of it. I looked, and I could see this giant pickup, four-wheel drive, picking its way down the fire trail, and then crossing little logs and stuff that are out there. I came out of the front of the cabin, and I went around the side to meet the ranger. As he was getting out of his truck, I walked up to him, and I said, sir, I'm sorry we had to break into your cabin. Now, just remember this. I just committed a felony based on the sign. And this is a man in uniform coming up. Sweetest thing I'd ever seen. Because <laughs> it means I and my kids might live now. Right? So a man in uniform is not bad news right about there. I walked up and I said, sorry we had to break into your cabin. He said, I've just been hoping to find you here. I said, well, we got into the closet. <laughs> I said, we broke a window. We've really messed up your sleeping bags. We'll be glad to take care of it. He said, don't worry. I'll take care of it. And right about then, I remembered when Jesus comes, I'm guilty of sin meeting him. And I'm going to say, Jesus, but I'm a sinner. And he's going to say, don't worry. I've already taken care of that. The ranger walked around with me to the front of the house. I should tell you what happened to my younger daughter, Jennifer. She's looking, and she runs out on the porch to make sure this really is a ranger in a truck. She has ditched her blue jeans last night. She has a sweatshirt on. She's got her legs through the arms. It's better than blue jeans. <laughs> For survival, okay? Okay. And she gets out on the porch and, you know, she's hanging on to it, you know. And she sees it is a ranger and she's like, yeah! <laughs> we didn't care. It was great. It was celebrating a ranger arrival, ranger's arrival. The 19-year-old weightlifter, 11 o'clock in the morning, he's still in that sleeping bag. Oh, he's still... All of us are shaking violently. And... Uh, the ranger comes in and takes a quick look, and he says, is everybody here? I said, no. He did not like that. I didn't expect him to. And I said, I can tell you where they are. And I said, but then first he decided, he looked at this guy, he said, hey, by the way, I've got something outside. And he goes out, he goes out, and he grabs a pair of wind pants and a jacket that he has in his truck. He comes in, he hands them to the weightlifter, and he said, hey, I've got some cliff bars in the truck, and it's warm in there. Weightlifter hears cliff bars and warm. <laughs> On the way past the ranger, he grabs the pants, 
and heads to the truck to put him on after he's in it. <laughs> All he heard was warm and food, and he was gone. Who cares if he's streaking? <laughs> we got a topo map out and laid it on the roof of the truck, on the hood of the truck, and I traced the route. And he radios in to send a search party in from above and try and come down and meet the route that I've described. They had search parties following the stream looking for our bodies. Now they could at least go looking for live people up there. We got in the truck. I should tell you what the ranger was wearing when he got out of his truck. He's driving a big four-wheel drive truck on a, almost to a mountaintop. He's wearing a life jacket. It was that kind of a day. He put us in, it was a crew cab. He packs us all in there and he gives us some of his cliff bars and stuff he's got in there for emergency food. And we classed. <laughs> put some calories into us. He cranks up the heat and as hot as it'll go and that, we hardly felt it. And we head down the mountain. We get to the ford that is now lowered he crossed it on the way in. And he tells me, by the way, on the way in here when I was crossing that, the current grabbed the truck, the back end swung in the current. He said, I prayed and I hit the gas and I made it. That's why he's wearing a life jacket. We get to that crossing. He takes the life jacket and puts it on my 10-year-old. He's got one life jacket. Youngest kid gets it. He put us all in the back of the truck, made us get out, put us in the bed of the truck. He said, if I get swept off of this crossing, you have a fighting chance if you're not in the truck. Not that he has much of a chance. By the way, I respect Ranger Bill Strobel. I have never forgotten his name. And uh, ever heard of the Ranger Bill program? Mm, I got rescued by Ranger Bill. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we made it across just fine. He got us to our car. But now this is a four-wheel drive road, and I'd come down a four-wheel drive road in a two-wheel drive van. It's now washed out really bad overnight. And all the downstream crossings are way underwater. It was going to be five days before I could get my car out of the parking spot till the water got low enough. He packs us in to his after we change and get food out of our car, and he takes us up a mountain back road that's really rough four-wheel drive. He's radioed in where other people are. And as we're going in, we get a call that they're found. And when I say in, it's to a little country gas station, post office, convenience shop that's a little tiny one-room place. Compton. One building is the town of Compton. And uh, so they take us there. And here's the story for my two that left us. They're walking along and, and they're running out of energy. They sit down on a log to pray. They're following the route just like they promised. From the log, they can see under some underbrush and trees. And they see a house on a ridge near them. They wouldn't have stopped to pray. They may not have seen it. 
So they head for the house. They get to the house and they knock on the door. And they hear a voice inside. Come in! So they open the door and come in. And this guy looks and sees two very wet, cold people. And he says, oh, you must be Troy and Tanya. At that moment, they knew we'd been rescued. He had gotten a call from the National Park Service. Would he please go out to his cabin, open up the gates, because they were sending a rescue party in, and if he would open the gates, they could drive a lot further in before they had to go on foot. He beat them there, went to his cabin, just had walked in, and somebody knocked on the door. Troy and Tanya. <laughs> Five minutes later, the rescue team shows up, stops at this house to say, hey, we're here, don't lock up, we need to drive out of here. And he says, by the way, here's Troy and Tanya. <laughs> It was a really sweet rescue. And so they brought Tori and Tanya around to get with us. It took me seven hours from being in, introduced to heat in that truck, waiting in the store in a heated location, in another vehicle in a loca heated location, standing between my wood stove and the brick wall at home. It took me seven hours to stop shaking. I wish I knew what my core temperature was that night. <laughs> but hey we made it but I remember hey some very simple principles you never give up you stick together relationships are important even if you've blown it you keep using what you've got and by the way even something as simple as an Adventist health message on vegetarianism makes a big difference thing after thing was there and most of all, I will never forget. When Jesus comes and I'm a sinner, he's going to say, I've already taken care of that. Yeah. I'm just going to add this to it. The really interesting thing may be to some of you. That was December of 2011. I mean, 2001. On September 10, 2001, my church went through a knockdown, drag out business meeting. And it wasn't good. My conference president was there. I had told him what was going to happen. He would not take a stand, he would not help. And it blew up just like I told them it would do if we didn't take steps to avoid it. My church is a big church and it's splitting down the middle. It's September 10, 2001. You know what happened on September 11. On that Friday night, we had an evangelistic series scheduled to start a prophecy seminar. Do you know what usually happens if you have a crisis happen while your advertising is out on a prophecy seminar? You get overrun with people. We had one guest show up and only a handful of members in a 900-member church. God wasn't about to send anybody into that mess.
And within a week of September 11, I spun, spun into a depression. I didn't come out of that depression until mid-December when a caving trip went bad. And all of a sudden, I was just grateful to be alive and my kids were alive. I can tell you what, you may not always appreciate God's methods, but he uses some really interesting therapy at times. <laughs> and it took me out of it. And uh, so there are good things that happen. Did I ever say that God will use all things for good? If you've got that kind of attitude, it's a lot harder for Satan to take you down. Matter of fact, if you're trusting Jesus and you believe he'll work everything out, Ultimately, Satan cannot take you down. Make sure you're trusting him. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so grateful you're bigger than we are. And you can see the future and you can get us in just the right combination of things. And Lord, I just ask that your spirit would work in each person's heart here, in each life here. And Lord... Help us to make our churches loving places where we never give up on ourselves or anyone else. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to share something else quickly. I was talking to somebody today. He was talking about his church is a mess. Now, I know I've been pastored lots of churches and some of them were big messes. As a matter of fact, almost any church will at some time or another go through a big mess. Seventh-day Adventist, most of you believe in the ministry of Ellen White. She talked about what God wished the church would be, but she also talked about what will be. And what does she say about the church right at the end? Looks like it's about to fall. It's a huge mess. So when people come up to me and say, hey, their church or the Adventist church or whatever church is a big mess, I look at them and smile. I say, that means we're right on track, doesn't it? It's not where God wishes we would be, but it is right where he said we would be. So should I give up? No. Don't give up. But I can complain about everything that's going wrong, right? Don't do that. I would suggest you really have no right to complain unless you can demonstrate a better way. If you can't prove that a be- there is a way that works better, don't complain about what somebody else is trying. They may be doing it totally wrong, but at least they're trying something. So here's my suggestion. Get together a group of people. Pray, ask God to show you what He wants your church to be. Then, whatever the leadership of the church is doing, you as a small group decide you're going to be that kind of a church. You're going to be that kind of relationship. You are going to love people even if they don't agree with you. You're not going to give up on them and you're not going to give up on yourself. You're not going to give up on the church. You have caring relationships that don't quit. And then start trying things yourself. And once you find something that works, now you can say, instead of just criticizing somebody else, you say, hey, look, this is working. Why don't you try this? And most people who are trying stuff, even if it's wrong stuff, they're just looking for something that'll work. And if I don't miss my guess, 
Most of you here, the majority, not all, but most of you here are from conservative backgrounds. Now I get to step on toes. Most conservative churches aren't growing very well because they're critical conservative churches. Nothing wrong with being conservative with God's word and conservative with truth. But friends, Jesus was conservative with God's truth. He practiced God's word completely. But he was liberal in loving people right where they were. So if you want your church to grow, ask God to help you to turn it into a liberal conservative church that loves people and is happy. And at that point, your church will explode. Because you're loving people, you're reaching out in love, not in criticism. Please don't criticize. Do what Jesus did. And oh, if you do that, you're going to get somebody mad. Because the liberals hated Jesus because he was so conservative, and the conservatives hated him because he was so liberal. So the liberals and conservatives got together and killed him. So it won't end your problems, but at least you know you're in the right spot when both sides come after you. Where are God's people? Thank you. <laughs> Oops.